Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Purpose of Life podcast. I am your host, Wyatt Hebblethwaite. And man, I am stoked, as always, for Howard Hendricks. We're about to dive into part three of his five-part discipleship teaching. And if you haven't listened to one or two, you really should probably stop and go back. But if you're not going to do that, then you should know that Howard Hendricks taught at Dallas Theological Seminary and had an eye patch. I bring it up a lot. I think it's very cool. Without further ado, here is Howard Hendricks in part three of Discipleship. The Dynamics of Discipleship. In our series thus far, we have sought to answer two crucial questions. First, what is a disciple? We discovered that a disciple is a learner, he's a follower. He is a reproducer. What he is determines what he does. The second question we sought to answer is, what is our biblical authority for making disciples? We looked last night at two passages which conspire to build a convincing case. Making disciples is not an option. It is an essential. In Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, we find that our Lord commanded his disciples to make disciples. These were among the last words which our Lord uttered on earth. And as we suggested, Last words are lasting words. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, we discovered that the Apostle Paul commanded Timothy to take that which he heard and make a deposit of it in the life of faithful men, teaching them in such a way that they are equipped to teach others also. So we have a biblical mandate, but we also have a biblical model. Your disciples, like my students, will not necessarily do what you say. They will tend to do what you do. I got so shook up some time ago about the use of audiovisual aids, the realization that we're living in a visually oriented society, and yet for the most part, we're pretty much shut up to a verbal means of communication. And so I got some facts, and I dropped this on the, these on the brethren, and I told them, you're living in a visually oriented society. Cranked out my little sermon. So I decided I better go out to find out what they're doing. See, they're getting up in churches and saying, ladies and gentlemen, we're living in a visually oriented society. And they're dropping the same facts on them I dropped on them with no visuals. (laughs) About the same time, I was quite interested in small group involvement, and I decided to take a different tack. Instead of suggesting that they use group techniques, I would say at the beginning of a class, all right, gentlemen, now the first thing we're going to do today is to divide up into groups. I want you five guys, move over here, back there, etc. I went out into the church, and lo and behold, they'd get up and say, now, ladies and gentlemen, the first thing we're going to do tonight is divide up in groups. I want you five people to go over here. Well, I never told them to do that. They were doing what... I was doing, not what I was telling them to do. May I remind you that before Jesus Christ ever commanded an individual to make disciples, he had built into the life of those men with a distinctive discipling process. He gave them an example 
before he gave them an exhortation. He gave them a model before he ever provided the mandate. And the same thing is true with the Apostle Paul. Before he ever told Timothy, he trained Timothy. Timothy experienced the pattern before Paul ever explained the process. And tonight I'd like to walk you through a New Testament model for making disciples. May I remind you once again that the process is more important than the product. So I would suggest you take down these scriptures we're going to look at tonight. And I would suggest that you begin an intensive personal study of these portions of the Word of God. If you do, I will guarantee you will never be the same again. Now I want to launch our study by asking you to turn in the book of the Acts to chapter 8. I want to begin by giving you a feel for the climate in which New Testament discipleship took place. It was not favorable. It was not conducive. It never is. New Testament discipleship flourishes in the midst of a hostile environment. Chapter 8 opens with public enemy number one to the church, Saul of Tarsus, in action, and the church learning the law of spiritual thermodynamics, namely, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. Stephen had just been stoned to death in chapter 7, and we read at the end of verse 58 that they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was the ringleader. In fact, in chapter 8 and verse 1, you read, And Saul was consenting unto his death. The word translated consenting is an intriguing word meaning to cast a ballot. Saul was approving the liquidation of Stephen. And that liquidation launched an intensified program of persecution. We read there arose on that day a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Please note, except the apostles. The pros didn't move. Chapter 8 and verse 4, they therefore that were scattered abroad went everywhere griping and complaining and saying, my, isn't it tragic that God allowed this to happen to us? <laughs> You'll notice that in your text. That's the reversed standard version. <laughs> During my sabbatical, I was ministering in the great country of India, just outside a communist-controlled state, where it is against the law to preach the gospel. We conducted a pastor's conference, and to that conference came three pastors who had just been released from prison for preaching the gospel. I said, men, what's it like in your state? They said, just like the book of the Acts. I said, really, tell us about it. Why, they said, the more they persecute us, the more we flourish. We had to start two services, three services, four services. We're now up to five services every Sunday morning to accommodate the crowds. Finally, the elders got together and they said, hey, pastor, we got a problem. We discovered some people coming to more than one service. <laughs> so they got up and made an announcement. Said so from now on, it's one service and one service only. If we see you in a second service, we're going to ask you to leave because you're taking somebody's seat who wants to study the Word. Well, that went on for a while. Finally, the elders came up with another plan. 
They announced on one Sunday, from now on, if you come this Sunday, you stay home next Sunday. It's one Sunday on, one Sunday off, just like it is in your community. <laughs> but for an altogether different reason. And you emerge from an experience like that asking, how can we launch a persecution? <laughs> You see, these people were not shot through with self-pity. My, isn't it tragic? <laughs> they went everywhere, preaching the word. That's a very interesting word, because we're not talking about professionals. For the most part, we are talking about laymen, who went everywhere bearing the good tidings concerning Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 9, in verse 1, the narrative continues, But Saul, yet, breathing, threatening, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, asked of him letters to Damascus unto the synagogues, that if he found any that were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. May I remind you, Saul loved God, but he hated Jesus. And he thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting those who were associated with Jesus. But somewhere on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter from which he never recovered. He met the living Messiah. And what a revelation that was. I am Jesus. Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Well, in verse 26, we read an interesting insight. When he was come to Jerusalem, he returned there. He attempted to join himself to the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Now, frankly, this is very difficult for me to believe in terms of contemporary church life. You know, we open the doors of the church and the people come forward and we ask them a profound question such as, you know Jesus Christ is your savior, don't you? <laughs> and if the guy grunts, he's in. <laughs> I sat in a group of elders some time ago and a pastor said to this man coming into the church, uh, have you read and are you in agreement with the doctrinal statement of this church? <laughs> Blushed, he said, Pastor, you just gave it to me yesterday. And frankly, I haven't had the time. Oh, he said, that's all right, we'll change it. Will you read it and be in agreement? <laughs> and so, help me, they tuck him in right in front of my eyes. <laughs> So here we are, try, trying to get into the doors of the church. And they're saying, no way, Jose. <laughs> That's in the Greek text. <laughs> now, if you want to pick up the flavor, the mentality, you got to do this when you're studying the Bible. Go back to verse 10 of chapter 9. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said unto him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. The Lord said unto him, Arise. Yes, sir. Go into the street which is called Straight. Roger. Choir in the house of Judas. Got it. For one named Saul. Uh-huh. <laughs> A man of Tarsus, I don't think he ever heard a word from here on out. <laughs> How do I know? Look at verse 13. He proceeds to give God a little information. <laughs> you ever do that in your prayers? <laughs> Lord, this is Hendrix. 
Silver Rock Drive. We even give him the zip code today. You see, most of us have a concept of God as a harassed telephone operator. And all of the calls are coming in at one time, and we sure don't want them to batch it up. So look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to thy saints, and I'm one of them. At Jerusalem, and I heard he left there, and he's on his way here, and he's got authority to bind all that call upon thy name. Now, you probably have a, a period at the end of that, but there shouldn't be a period. He never finished the statement. God interrupted him. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. Verse 17, And Ananias departed, and entering into the house of Saul, he laid his hands on him and said, Brothers, Saul. I don't know if he said it that way, but I sure would have. Put yourself in this position. How would you like the assignment? How would you like to put your hand on public enemy number one and call him Brother Saul when you're not sure about what he's going to get up from his knees and put air between the top and the bottom of your body? That's what he'd been doing. So, you know, I hear them in this discussion, and one guy says, Hey, man, don't give me that kind of a rhubarb. I mean, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. I can see through that ruse. Here's a guy who fakes conversion in order to get on the inside of it and say, now, who are these people in this outfit? And then one by one, knock them off. Uh-uh. I move to reject. Now look at the next verse. But Barnabas. May I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that humanly speaking, Barnabas is the only explanation as to why Saul ever got into the church. This man took an immense and irretrievable step. He risked his whole reputation going clean out on the limb. He took him, brought him to the apostles, declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way that he'd spoken to him, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now notice verse 28, and he was with them. With them, going in and going out of Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spake and disputed among the Grecian Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. Now, let me nail something in your thinking. The early days in a person's life, physically and spiritually, are very determinative. My oldest daughter is in a graduate program at the University of Pennsylvania in the field of neonatology, the field of the newborn involved in a research program, and she was sharing to me when she was home recently for our younger daughter's wedding some of the most exciting research now being conducted as to how strategic are those early moments, early hours, early days, early years to mark a child for life. My friend, that's no less true in the spiritual realm. That's why discipleship is so critical. That's why follow-up is not something nice, it's necessary. And what you expose a new disciple, disciple to early in his Christian life will mark him. And I believe the apostle had this tremendous burden to communicate to Timothy at the end of his life. Timothy, take what I've given to you and share it with others, teaching them so that they can share it with others because that's exactly what happened to him when he came in the front door of the church. That's what makes me so excited about the Navigators. 
And that is, I have seen many of these individuals make the most profound contribution. I think I counted the last time, we've got about 39 students in our present student body whose whole life and ministry has been changed because some navigator got to him invariably in the early stages of his Christian life. Got him into memorizing the Word. Got him into studying the Scriptures. Got him into sharing his faith. Taught him some basic principles of Christian experience. That's exactly what happened to this man. Now, I want you to turn over to chapter 11. Barnabas and those dear believers at Damascus were the ones who made the initial impact on the man who became the great apostle Paul. Now, in chapter 11, and verse 19. They therefore that were scattered abroad upon the tribulation that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word of God to none except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Greeks, to the Gentiles also preaching the word of Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number that believed turned unto the Lord, and the report concerning them came to the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. Now, my friends, let me give you a little perspective. This is an extremely delicate and difficult situation. This could have split the early church right at its infancy into two groups, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And when the word came to the church at Jerusalem, they said, man, we got a problem. This is a highly explosive situation. And the interesting thing to me is, they sent forth Barnabas. <laughs> this guy had a tremendous facility for untying knots. I call him the man with the oily disposition. If you watch him, he's invariably functioning in troubling situations. Whenever they have something too hot to handle, they dispatch Barnabas. And here's Brother B, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad. And he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Here's the explanation, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. But notice what happened. He went forth to Tarsus to seek for Saul, his disciple. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that even for a whole year, they were gathered together with the church and taught much people. My friends, that's discipling. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, the next time you find an illustration of this, write me a letter. See, one of our problems in studying the scripture is that we don't back off and get a little perspective. Here's Barnabas on the ground floor of the church. Here's Saul, who becomes a convert. They don't want to accept him. The only reason they accepted him is that Barnabas took him in. He's growing in the Lord. The Antioch situation develops. The church of Jerusalem says, man, send Barnabas up for that tough situation. And when he gets up there and surveys the scene and discovers how much is happening, he says, man, I can't handle this alone. So he goes and seeks Saul to be his associate. Not really. He brings Saul to minister with him and ultimately to replace him. For if you read carefully through the book of the Acts, you will discover it's always Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul until finally it switches and becomes Paul and Barnabas. Now these are the conditions for the letter. 
I want you to find a young man who graduates from some evangelical seminary, who goes out to a local church, ministers the word, people are one to Christ, built up in the faith, the thing is going so great, the guy says, man, I can't handle it. So he gets the board together and says, man, I'm just not equal for it. I don't have the gifts, I don't have the ability, but I got a guy who was in seminary with me. He graduated after I did. That's a part of the condition. And I'll tell you what, if you'll give me permission, I'm going to go get him, and we're going to bring him here, and he's going to be pastor of the church, and I'm going to be associate pastor. Now, the next time you find one of those, write me a letter. <laughs> you got the conditions? That's what Barnabas did. That's true discipleship. And I'm looking right now in the face of some men and women who are going to be instrumental in leading some people to Christ and building them up in the word who are going to become some of the strategic leaders in the church of Jesus Christ in the next generation. And as far as human church history is concerned, they'll never know your name. But his or her name will be blazoned all over the Christian headlines. That exciting? You don't think so? <laughs> uh. Turn over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, they're now out, Paul and Barnabas, on the first missionary journey. They are traveling together. By the way, I'm often asked, how do you disciple a person? Travel with them. Take them with you. I often tell laymen in our community, what in the world's the point of going across town to do something without taking some disciple with you? Somebody you know whose life you can build. As I wander all over the landscape, I am constantly taking students with me. And I want you to know, my friends, I will teach more to a student between Dallas and Oklahoma City and between Oklahoma City and Dallas than I do sometimes in four years. And the interesting thing is, long after he's out, he say to me, hey, Prof, you remember the trip to Oklahoma City? Boy, that's where God broke through to me. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because as I think Leroy was mentioning or someone the other day, this is more caught than it is taught. But you see, if a person never gets close enough to you to feel your heartbeat, find out what's your value system, what are you committed to, then it's a little hard for this to rub off. And about all they pick up are your words. And most of us are weary of words. Add them into your home. All kinds of interpersonal relationships. Now look at verse 19. But there came Jews thither from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And I take it they did a pretty good job if they thought that. But as the disciples stood round about him, in other words, they're in it, he rose up, entered into the city, and on the morrow he went forth with Barnabas to Derbe. And when he had preached the gospel to that city, notice evangelism, and had made many disciples, notice education, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Notice they are tracing their steps again. Doing what? Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that through many tribulations we might enter into the kingdom of God. Question, what are you doing to prepare your disciples to suffer. I think one of the most dramatic moments in my life as a Christian came when I heard a collection of evangelical missionaries who just emerged from old China when the communists came in and took over. And in the interview they were asked, what was your greatest mistake? They said, our greatest mistake is that we failed to prepare our people for suffering. 
And that's the greatest mistake in America. Very possible that you and I as disciples in this country may live to see a day when you will pay a price for your identification with Jesus Christ. What are you doing to prepare your disciples for that? By the way, parents, what are you doing to prepare your children for that? You running from reality? You sticking them into a little aseptic situation so they won't ever get knocked around? Are you exposing them out where the real world is? That's where they're going to have to function. You are preparing your children to live in a cesspool society. And my friend, if they can't live clean for Jesus Christ on a university campus, I got news for you. We really didn't prepare. Because the Christian life does not depend upon environment. It depends upon relationship with the living Christ. What are they doing out here in this first missionary journey? Mind you, the first thing crack out of the barrel. They're making disciples. They're going through these towns, and then they come back to confirm what happened. Good navigators. Well, you say, man, that's beautiful. What, what, what a delightful picture. Well, I got a little contrast for you. Turn to chapter 15. Because one of the problems in communicating this truth is that most of us tend to think that all of this took place in an environment of perfection. And I particularly am intrigued by listening to young people talking because they are so idealistic and we're all going to get together and we're all going to live in this wonderful Christian fellowship and we're going to love one another and we're never going to have any problems. And I say, right. Acts chapter 15 begins and ends with a problem. It begins with a doctrinal problem and it ends with a personal problem. It begins with a problem of revelation and it ends with a problem of relationship. And I kid you not, the latter of the two is the more difficult. They didn't have too much problem solving the doctrinal problem, but they didn't solve the human relational problem. Does that jar you? That's what I love about the Word of God. It's so realistic. It had to be written by God. We never included this thing in here. <laughs> man, you know, we blew some public relations man really goof. Look at verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas tarried in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Notice they are always associated with others. And after some days, Paul said unto Barnabas, let's return now and visit the brethren in every city wherein we proclaim the word of God and see how they fare. You see, they had a good follow-up program. That's why they were so successful. And Barnabas was determined to take with him John also, who was called Mark. But Paul thought not good to take with them him who withdrew from them from Pamphylia. Looking back in chapter 13 and verse 13, if you want to put the reference, you will discover old John Mark takes off like a rocket and he comes down like a rock. He gets out, and in the heat of the battle, he gets homesick. <laughs> I got to go see Mom. <laughs> so he takes off. Don't look at me that way. Because the Greek word that Paul used is a very rare word. It means to leave in a lurch. Paul says he left us at the most critical point, and there's no way we can run that risk again. We are not taking John Mark. Well, that sounds like your church, doesn't it? Now look at verse 39. And there arose a sharp contention. And don't try to water it down. In the Greek text, it's even more graphic. They had a Donnybrook. They just could not come to agreement. 
so that they parted asunder one from the other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away into Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and took off. So here they split. And one guy takes his man and go off this way, and the other one takes his and go off this way. And everybody says, First century Christianity? The Apostle Paul? And I can see some of you sitting there saying, okay, Hendricks, which one was right? I'll tell you, they both were. Paul had the work in mind. And he was spiritually perceptive enough to know that under certain conditions, the work is greater than the worker, and you cannot ruin a work with one person who can't get with it. Barnabas was right because he had the worker in view. And he says, right, Paul, he blew it. Flushed out. What are you going to do with him now? Throw him in the ash can? No way. And did it ever occur to you? Barnabas split with Paul when Barnabas was the explanation as to why Paul got in the church in the first place in order to pick up John Mark. Now, you know, I wish we had time to go into all of this, but chase that one through, because that's beautiful. When you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's about ready to go home to glory. And he has some very important things to say. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says to Timothy, bring John Mark because he's profitable for ministering. <laughs> Beautiful. How in the world did he come profitable? Well, my friend, it wasn't through Paul. <laughs> it was through Barnabas, who picked him up, gave him a second chance, discipled him. And then isn't it interesting? that when the Holy Spirit wants to pen a portrait of the unfailing servant, Jesus Christ, he picks up for his pen, John Mark, the failing servant, to write about the unfailing servant, Jesus Christ. You know what this story teaches you? Something you really need to know. And that is God always uses imperfect instruments. That's how you got in. <laughs> That's how I made it. Well, let's go over a little further to chapter 18. And verse 1. After these things, he, that is Paul, he's now separated from Barnabas. He departed from Athens, and he came to Corinth. Now, this is the first time he sets foot in Corinth. And in typical Pauline fashion, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a man of Pontus by race, lately come, you know, just happened to be there. Like Calvin said, a tremendous stroke of luck. Hey, will you people do me a favor? Just one. Will you delete from your vocabulary, lucky? Now that you come to faith, that is a dirty word. And stop telling people good luck. He didn't just happen to come. In fact, <laughs> Luke tells you he came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. The old Claudius got a little insomnia. He's trying to think of something creative to do, and the next morning he wakes up and says, Hey, boys, get the Jews out of here. Roger. So everybody thinks, man, you know, here we are in the Jews again. He says, no, I, I got to get a couple down to Corinth. So Claudius, get them out of here. Right, Lord. You know. He didn't know from schmutz what was happening. He thought he had a brilliant idea. He did. It just wasn't his. 
And isn't it interesting? He picks up a couple. By the way, I have another gripe to register. And that is, uh, I'm a little weary of our discipling just men and just women when most of us live as couples. My wife and I are experiencing a whole new ball game in the process of discipling couples. It's the most exciting thing we have ever seen. Our Christian community in Dallas is covered over with women who have come to Bible classes, have received Christ as their Savior, have been built up in the Word of God, and then go home and try to cram this stuff down Pop's throat. And man, he couldn't care less about Jesus Christ. Here's the Apostle Paul. He gets a hold of a couple, and man, what a winner it was. How did he pick up that couple? Well, verse 3 tells you, because he was the same, of the same trade. And he abode with them, and they worked. For by their trade, they were tent makers. That's a clue to discipleship. See, stop feeling sorry for yourself that you're a carpenter. That's your ministry, to reach carpenters that most doctors don't touch, except to put some shelves in. And you've been feeling sorry for yourself, haven't you? Yeah, I'm an engineer, milkman, going out of the milk business. Just a housewife. Ooh, I think I will scream the next time I ask somebody, well, what do you do? I don't work. I'm just a housewife. <laughs> and by the way, did it ever occur to you why God put you in a community in which you found that? It wasn't by accident, too. Well, all the time, everyone, you know, I'm the only person that lives on this block who knows Jesus. Fantastic, man. Just think of it. God entrusted the whole block to you. <laughs> See, we feel sorry for something. I'm the only person in this office that knows Jesus now. I'm calling the preacher. <laughs> and I am finding some of the greatest people to win lawyers are lawyers. Some of the greatest people to reach professional athletes are professional athletes. Some of the best people to reach housewives are housewives. And we could go on and on. See, that's how he built this relationship. They were both in the same fraternity. How'd they make a living? Tent making. So they brought him in to their home. And while he's there, He's discipling them. How long? Well, verse 11 says it went on for 18 months, a year and six months, teaching the word of God among those people there. Verse 18, and Paul, having tarried after this yet many days, took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. With him? Yeah. He spent 18 months building into the life of a couple, and now he's taken off for Ephesus and says, okay, Priscilla and Aquila, we're moving. And they go with him to Ephesus. And we read in verse 19, they came to Ephesus and he left them there. And I just add one thing for you, my friend. You know what most of us are doing? We are overtraining some of our disciples. Doesn't that sound strange coming from a person like me? I'm convinced of it. I think what Leroy said this morning is absolutely profound. That so often we give the impression that unless you know everything perfectly, you're not prepared to do anything for Jesus Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. And you know who you should learn it from? You should learn it from the communists. You should get a hold of the book by Hyde. Leadership and dedication. You know what he said? The greatest mistake the Communist Party met, made was in trying to teach people too much too soon. He unload a whole truck on a group of people and wipe them out. They never show up again. So he said, we finally got to the idea, teach them one thing. So you bring them in, lesson one. Man, they infect them with this. Okay, man, come out, take them. So they go out, 
you know, and conduct this little thing, and boom, they get knocked all over. Just plaster the wall with them. Guy comes out bloody, whoo! Goes back to the meeting. How'd it go, man? Oh, terrible. What's happening? Oh, man, he crucified me. Really? Well, what's the matter? Oh, I don't know enough. Good. Sit down. Lesson two. <laughs> you see, what we do is put them through the whole treatment. By the time they get through, they're educated beyond their intelligence. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know so much, I can now teach the discipleship class. <laughs> now he takes them over to Ephesus after 18 months of training, and he leaves them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to abide longer time, he consented not. I like that. Oh, hang on a little longer, Paul. Nah, I'm taking off. So long. You're not going to leave us. <laughs> exactly. But he said, I'll return again unto you if the Lord wills. And if he doesn't, you don't want me anyway, right? Yeah, Paul, that's right. <laughs> Isn't that what you say? Hang around a little longer. I don't think I'm ready. When are you going to be ready? I don't know. Hang around a little longer. <laughs> you know what I call that? The principle of dangling. <laughs> oh, I love to use it in seminary. You just put them right out there where you hang them royally. We put a guy out in a fraternity house some time ago. You know, he was a guy who came up after class one day and he said, Prof, can you give me something that's a little more challenging? <laughs> he said, yeah, I, I think I got something for you. Guys. And so I sent him out to this fraternity house and so help me, they plastered the walls with the guy. They literally decimated him. He came out just a bloody mess. And the guy that picked him up said, I couldn't believe it, the guy was white. He had come to me on a campus and said, hey, bro, I want you to pray for me. And I said, great, what do you want me to pray for? Oh, I said, pray that they won't go for my throat. <laughs> I said, hey, you know I won't pray for that. I said, that's exactly what I will pray for, <laughs> that they will go for your throat. Next morning, I met him on a campus. I said, how'd it go? He said, oh, Lord answered your prayers. <laughs> <laughs> Greatest thing that ever happened to this guy. Now look at verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by race, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. That's where Aquila and Priscilla are now. Get the picture? Very brilliant. Very gifted. He's mighty in the scriptures. Had a good background. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Somebody discipled him up to a certain point. And being fervent in spirit, I love that, he spake and taught accurately. That's a good goal. The things concerning Jesus. But he had a problem. He knew only the baptism of John. He knew nothing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Very accurate insofar as he went. He just didn't go far enough. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila, who had been trained in 18 months, heard him, with spiritual discernment, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. Now, one of the first things I want to do when I get home to heaven is to ask Apollos how this happened. But I'll tell you how I think it happened. You know, they were standing at the door for what I call the glorification of the worm ceremony. You know, where everybody comes by, oh, pastor was one, like listening to Paul. You know, and they all go through really profound statements. Someday I'm going to write a book on it. And they, they sort of hang around in the wings, and finally they come up and they say, thanks a lot. Uh, by the way, what are you doing for lunch? Well, I thought I'd just, you know, stop over at McDonald's. <laughs> so, well, uh, you know, why don't you come home with us? <laughs> thanks a lot. So they take him home. You know what I think happened? I think he came in and they said, hey, boss, why don't you stretch out? It's going to be an hour before we have dinner, and, you know, you've put out, man, a guy who can preach like you, that's exhausting. So just stretch yourself out there, kick your shoes off, make yourself at home, and then when you wake up, we'll have dinner ready. 
boy, he wakes up, feels like a new man comes out, and man, she's got him a meal that won't quit. She's got the gift. Not a spiritual gift. Cooking. You can tell it isn't spiritual. Look at it. But what a gift of ministering. Serves him this excellent meal. And then they go into the living room and sit down. And they say, hey, got a couple things to share with you that Paul gave to us. Man, what this did for us. Now this is very interesting for those of you preachers sitting here. Did it ever occur to you what caliber of man Apollos was? See, it takes a big man to have a layman say to him, uh, hey, pastor, I'd like to share something with you. Great preacher, great teacher, great evangelist, but he was teachable. See, that's the mark of a disciple. He had it, and he immediately recognized, yeah, that's what I need. Priscilla, Aquila, tremendous. And when he was minded to pass over into Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to receive him. And when he was come, he helped them much that had believed through grace. Where is he now? He's over in Corinth. What's he doing now? He's building on the foundation that Paul laid. that beautiful? That's the model of discipleship. Starting right at the beginning, you can trace it all the way through the book of the Acts. There is no variation. You ever sat down and done a little exercise? Can I share one with you that I did this afternoon? Take yourself a piece of paper Draw a square in the middle of it. Put your initials in it. And then sit down and ask yourself, who were the people that God used to build into my life? See, every now and then I run into some student who says, boy, prophet, I really got this picture. I'm going to do what Jesus did. Really, what did Jesus do? Well, he built into a life of a group of men. So that's great. Are you Jesus? <laughs> no, of course not. You better be very careful of doing that. See, I happen to believe that Jesus had all of the gifts. I don't think we do. And I'm talking about the best disciple maker in this room or listening to my voice on this tape. You do not have what people need. You have part of what they need. But God is going to use many individuals to build into the life of a person. You know, he used in my life, he used my grandmother. Just for your information, I am convinced my grandmother could not pass an elementary test in theology. She just incarnated Jesus Christ. She made the gospel believable to me. You know, another person that built into my life, my father, who was an unsaved man. Isn't that interesting? So you mean to tell me that God uses unsaved people to disciple me? You better believe it. My father made the greatest contribution in my life of any human being on earth. He taught me what it meant to be a disciplined person. And I spent all of my time with students who got all kinds of gifts and all kinds of commitments, but they can't get it together. And they say, Prof, I'd give my right arm if I had your discipline. I often think, where did I get that? Get that? I'll tell you, I got it from my father. My father communicated nothing to me spiritually because he had nothing to communicate. My father came to know Jesus Christ just a year ago this month. I mean, a year ago last April. He died a year ago this month. Four months before he passed away. After 42 years of praying. The last time I saw my father on earth, I threw my arms around him and I said, Dad, you will never know how much God used you to build into my life. And I'll clue you, he never intended to prepare me for the ministry. (laughs) 
Well, I think of the professors I had. I wish I had time to tell you of some of these significant people. I remember Donald Gray Barnhouse, with whom I spent some time. I was marked by that dear man and his exacting teaching of the doctrines of the scripture. Over and over again, he used to whip out with that characteristic brush man brusque manner of his and say, that's sloppy theology. Give me a chapter and a verse for that. All right. You know, we'd be looking through Hezekiah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the guy that God used spiritually, his name is Walt. Don't you know what? You don't know what? You don't know? What a deprived person you are. Walt was my Sunday school teacher. Walt led me to Jesus Christ. Walt asked for a Sunday school class. And he said, sure, Walt. There they are out there. Go get them. So he came out in our community and he got it. Thirteen of us. And today, eleven of us are in full-time vocational Christian work. Nine of us from broken homes and five of us from Romanist homes. And Walt never went beyond sixth grade. And nobody ever knows his name. Except those who hear my story. Will you stop feeling sorry for yourself? God put you in that particular community with that particular vocation and with that particular gift to make disciples. Some of you dear ladies are sitting around here covered over with guilt because somebody's hung one on you and you think, man, if I'm not out there teaching the great Bible classes, if I'm not out there, you know, on the campus or wherever it is leading everybody to Jesus Christ, what in the world am I doing? See, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're building disciples. How many kids you got? Three. That's far more than you'll care to give an account of at the judgment seat of Christ. And that dear woman sitting there is the greatest disciple maker I have ever seen. And if she and I die tonight, we will die with complete fulfillment on the basis of four kids. Our disciples. The kids into whom we have built the teaching of the Word of God, our life, our burden, our vision. That's why God's saying to you the same thing He said to Moses What do you got in your hand? That's what I want you to use. Dear Father, We marvel at your grace. You're so understanding. You're so patient. Because, Father, some of us have been a long time in route. And we know a great deal intellectually, but we know so very little experientially. And just to expose our minds and our hearts to the book of the Acts and see first century Christianity in action, causes us spiritually to drool. It creates within, our, within us, Father, a hunger, a thirst for a similar impact. Ordinary people accomplishing extraordinary results because they were doing what Jesus commanded them to do. Give us this kind of a heartbeat for our generation and help us to see the particular sphere in which you've placed us right now as the greatest opportunity structured by you to bring blessing to others. And we want to thank you for what you're going to do because we have learned to expect great things at your hand. And we come expectantly. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.